Welcome to the What's What Weekly Wrap-Up. Today's show focuses exclusively on feature stories from the WFUV newsroom. I'm David Escobar. And I'm Jay Doherty. And here are this week's feature stories. Peter Quinn is an essayist, novelist, and former speechwriter for multiple New York governors. But before rising to prominence in his career, he wrote extensively about the Irish experience in New York City. This week, we're revisiting my conversation with Quinn about his recent memoir, Cross Bronx, A Writing Life. We discuss his journey from being a political speechwriter for New York politicians to now getting to write his own story. You are a true New Yorker in the sense that you have worked like every job I think there is possible. I guess the first question I really wanted to ask you is, you know, you've written all of these different like books, different genres. You haven't written a memoir before, at least in my understanding. So what's it been like to write about yourself instead of making up a story or telling a story about other people? Well, I was very reluctant. I always told myself, I, I'm not going to write a memoir. I don't want to do that. I don't want to dig in the past. And then the pandemic came along. And I was, I've was been working on a novel for a long time. And I just started to write down different thoughts. And it suddenly started to come out. It was a memoir. And I was always afraid of writing a memoir. Uh, I didn't have anything really to write about. My life wasn't that interesting. And uh, I didn't want to betray any confidences. But I have to say, the more I wrote, the more I said, yeah, I have seen a lot. I just wanted to tell the story from my perspective. And I say in the beginning, this is very subjective. I've seen all these tremendous changes in my lifetime, 50 years. It's like, you know, epic changes in the Bronx and New York and America. And just record what I, what I saw of that. Just real quick, like what's one job over your life that you never thought you would be doing? Speechwriting. <laughs> I've never met anybody with ambition to be a speechwriter. I was at Fordham and I wrote an article in America Magazine, the Jesuit Magazine, that somebody gave to the governor and he really liked it. And they said, Would you write the Fordham Law School commencement speech? I had never written a speech in my life. And if I knew now what I knew then, I probably wouldn't have done it. I did it and they really liked it. The John Jay commencement speech was the next week. So I wrote that. And then they offered me a job. I was a graduate student in the 70s, the economy was in the toilet. And I said, well, I'll do it for a year and then I'll go back and finish my degree. So I spent the next 30 years writing speeches. The speech writing was how I made a living. I had a, a passion to write and to write novels, but I couldn't make a living at it. So I would come in, I would work for two hours, and then they would put it in my bottom drawer. And I said, well, that's mine. They can't touch that. And as long as I had that manuscript and I was writing these novels, I could give the rest of the day to them. I was going to ask you, like, why you do it. You, like you say, like, it's hard to make a living, and but you clearly just, you have a passion for it. And I think that's that's kind of self-explanatory. The thing is, as speechwriters, you're supposed to not take any credit. I figured if I stayed a speechwriter in my life, nobody would ever know I existed. And then in novels, I could put my name on something. I remember when I, my first book came out, Banished Children, going to a bookstore and seeing my name on something, right? And it's like, yeah, I, I'm not anonymous anymore. I'm not like a scribe who died and was buried under the floor. Nobody knew existed. I walked into Scribner's on Fifth Avenue, which isn't there any longer. It was a great bookstore. And I walked in, and there was the book on a shelf. And I stood there so long, a clerk came over to me and said, are you all right? <laughs> that was my co-host, David Escobar, talking with author Peter Quinn about his memoir, Cross Bronx, A Writing Life. City Island is a coastal community in the Bronx located off the southern border of Pelham Bay Park. You can get there by way of the City Island Bridge, which connects the island to the rest of the Bronx. But given its location, residents in the New England-style neighborhood are intimately familiar with hurricanes, heavy rainfall, and flooding. 
While much of that rainfall results in nuisance flooding on residential streets, hurricane evacuation routes are also flooding, and that flooding is significant. WFUV's Megan Oftermat went to City Island to check out the hurricane evacuation routes on a rainy day. Driving through City Island on a rainy day, it's easy to see what residents are talking about. Orchard Beach Drive and City Island Road, the two primary routes that lead people off City Island through Pelham Bay Park, are flooding. And today, it's just drizzling. If our roadways flood, you know, or, or get really pools of water where you've got to, you know, swerve and everything, when it is, you know, no-name storms, you know, like Stormy Tuesday. How are we going to be prepared for what happens going forward into the future? That's John Doyle. He's a 30-year City Island resident, one of the Democratic district leaders for the 82nd Assembly District, and one of the founders of City Island Rising, a nonprofit organization that strives to improve the quality of life on City Island. Doyle says these storms and the resulting flooding are becoming more common. Fernando Torado, the director of new initiatives in the Bronx for the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, agrees. He says that since Sandy, superstorms just keep coming. You know, they're supposed to be every 25, 50 years, and it just seems to be happening with greater occurrence. How do you protect your neighbors? How do you protect your family? Uh, how do you protect yourself if you need to get out of a situation? Toronto helped the city navigate Hurricane Sandy recovery, and he wants disaster preparedness programs to be proactive instead of reactive. Social cohesion and community connections are an integral part of disaster preparation. If people don't have those resources to connect to during a disaster, then you will end up often worse off after a disaster, and it'll take them longer to recover. While people often think of disaster preparation as being infrastructure-focused, Fernando Torado explains that cities should have all sorts of tools in their arsenal. Resiliency is not just about buildings and roads and bridges. Resiliency, first and foremost, people. People need to become resilient. And this means asking some tough questions. What were the conditions that made you vulnerable to a disaster in the first place? How does your community or your built environment play a role in that? And what can you do to, to um, improve uh, your own personal resiliency as well as uh, the resiliency of your community? John Doyle, who you heard from at the top, he's also asking these tough questions. And he thinks that the flooding of hurricane evacuation routes out of City Island is one of the primary sources of vulnerability. We've identified all the problem drain spots we went we did a walking tour with the mayor's office and our elected officials sent representatives and the community board was there. We brought photos. To, I mean, I have over a thousand flooding photos. Even with the photos, fellow City Island Rising board member David Diaz says progress has been hard to come by. He explained to me that the cluster of city agencies just adds confusion. I reached out to both the Department of Parks and the Department of Transportation to see Who's responsible for road maintenance in Pelham Bay Park? They both referred me to each other. I mean, it's, it's neglect, frankly, at a, at a city level. That's John Doyle again. How many wake-up calls can our government be given? 
If the problem isn't solved, Doyle thinks that residents of City Island could be in danger. And even though these roadways flood, again, City Island, 4,500 people, these are the roadways we're going to have to travel on if we're expected to leave in the site of an emergency, and we're a zone one evacuation area. And it isn't just the flooding that poses a problem. There's only one way on or off the island, and there's no emergency provision like a ferry service that goes to City Island to help people get off the island if they need to. That didn't exist, and that still doesn't exist. That bridge, the City Island Bridge, the only way on or off the island, that actually closed during Hurricane Sandy. Whatever disaster happens on City Island on a summer weekend when, you know, the population is like three or four times that of the residents. With the peak of hurricane season marked in mid-August, this is a pressing question for residents, tourists, and the city. Uh, It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. For WFUV News, I'm Megan Oftermatt. That was WFUV's Megan Oftermatt talking about the flooding of hurricane evacuation routes on City Island in the Bronx. And that's it from us. But you can check out the What's What Weekly wrap-up every week for more features exclusively from the WFUV newsroom. And make sure to check out the WFUV What's What daily podcast every weekday at 3 for the latest local news and feature stories from FUV. And as always, you can find out more at WFUVnews.org. I'm David Escobar. And I'm Jay Doherty. And that's What's What.